This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. The Nazis were voted for because of the desperate situation created by the Depression. They did have a broad set of of promises that they pitched at different social groups. They were the first party to actually appeal to the German farmers in large numbers by promising to help them repay their debts and promising them government grants. But ultimately, the reason for the Weimar Republic's collapse, uh, the two main reasons are a catastrophic failure amongst the German elites to defend democracy combined with the effects of the depression on hyping up fear of communism and making people turn to extremist parties like the Nazis. America's chickens! Coming home! You're gonna sing the swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative activist empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. You just don't give up, just don't give up. And now, Janice Graham. You know, welcome to our common ground, the sanctuary for black truth among all the truths that will be useful in your life. I'm glad to have you with us here at our common ground, the black truth sanctuary. And um, we hope that you are enjoying the paranormal of uh, coming out of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and that you have essentially been able to navigate all of the hard stuff all week. If you're listening on a smart device and would like to join um, the Our Common Ground chatters in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. If you um, have a moment, tweet a friend and email a friend. Send our notice if you have it. And if you do not have it, you can go to OurCommonGround.com and sign up 
to get announcements regarding uh, this program. We generally come into the program um, with our statistics on police who have shot and killed. Uh, for the month of May, the count to this date from May 1st is 74. In April, it was 61. And uh, for the year, as of April 27th, the number was 292. I want to remind you about thinking through for your family and your friends and your loved ones, the CDC mass guidelines, if you can figure it out. But, you know, as we always do, we advise you to use your common sense here at Our Common Ground. Tonight at Our Common Ground, this episode is titled Black in America's Weimar Moment. And our guest is, you know who he is if you've been with us, Pascal Robert, the Thought Merchant. He is the co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. And if you have not had an opportunity to listen in with he and Jason Miles, you must do so. Three times a week, This Is Revolution podcast. Sign up at their Facebook page. They are on YouTube. And Pascal Robert is also and our common ground voice since 2013. And um, he is one of the five our common ground interlocutors. Look it up. He's co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. He is an essayist and political commentator on black politics, U.S. economics, and financial politics, and the the country of Haiti, cultural and political. He is a graduate of Hofstra University and Boston University Law School. He is an editorial contributor to the Black Agenda Report and has written for many digital publications, including the Huffington Post and the Washington Spectator. He lives and writes from Miami, Florida. Pascal Robert, it is so good, my brother, to have you back at Our Common Ground. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Janice. I appreciate every time I can connect with you. And thank you very much for promoting our, our podcast, This is Revolution, which you can also get on all of your uh, podcast apps, Apple, Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, as well, and I appreciate you uh, supporting our show, and I see you every time that you come in, and I see you in the chat. I make sure I give you a shout out because I appreciate yeah, you really, you really do. Well, your your broadcast was uh, very very interesting this morning, and we can later on. I'd like to talk about it and uh, about your guests because here at our common ground, one of the things that we are focused on is getting people to act. It is not enough to have a 
political ideology. It is required, it is the imperative of the time that we are able to create a black political infrastructure in which to make change, to make revolution, and to have our voices be resonant and also meaningful. And uh, it is something that I'm very concerned about. One of the reasons, Pascal, that you and I have chosen to talk about the Vermar um, democracy and how it failed and many people may not be aware, so let me let me throw out some background information. <clears throat> On January 30th in 1933, Adolf Hitler was named German's chancellor, spelling the word, the N, to the Weimar Republic. Germany's convulsive experiment with democracy was the Weimar Republic between 1919 and 1933. The period was dubbed the Weimar Republic by historians in honor of the city of Weimar where a national assembly convened to write and adopt a new constitution for the German Reich following the nation's defeat in World War I. The Republic was marked on the one hand by hyperinflation, mass unemployment, and political instability on the other, by dazzling creativity in the arts and sciences and a legendary nightlife in the city of, of Berlin. And in 1928, the Nazi Party was a marginal, unimportant political group which had very little resonance beyond some very distinctive places that were already in depression before the Great Depression, which meaning the Wall Street crash in the United States. In Germany, agricultural areas in particular, but in many ways, the Republic was seriously undermined and the political system was paralyzed prior to the Nazi seizure of power. Hitler came into power, ending the Weimar, Weimar uh, Republic. And, and, and what we want to talk about tonight, Pascal, the core question is, did Germany's experiment with democracy between 1919 and 1933 ever stand a real chance? And in America, are there similarities? Are we at the same juncture? And does the democracy that America talks about sells to us? Does it have a chance? That's a very, very good question, and it's a very important question. Uh, for me, the importance of the analogy or metaphor between America and the Weimar Republic is not so much to say that, you know, we're going to have a Hitler-like Nazi 
come into the fold of American governance in the immediate aftermath of whatever iteration of democracy that we have. The position that I'm, I, I would make is that we, we are in a period of rising global reactionary nationalism. And for me, it is very much important to root the phenomenon that we experience politically in the political economic moment and political economy. What do I mean by that? As you've already mentioned, and as our audience may know, one of the things that facilitated the rise of the Nazis in Germany uh, at, during the fall of the Weimar Republic was the poor economic condition and infrastructure of German society after World War I, which was compounded by the, uh, the, uh, the agreement that the Allies forced the Germans into in terms of paying reparations for the war, and as well, the 1929 crash. And a very you know, common statement that we often hear is that fascism is a product of capitalism in decay. So when we understand from a larger perspective that you know, in the last 50 years, and one of the major themes that we have in our podcast, and this is revolution, is what we call the 50-year counter-revolution. What do we mean by 50-year counter-revolution? Basically, since the end of the civil rights period, say from 1968 up until the modern political era, American politics has been a counter-revolution or a pushback or a blowback against the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition that came out of the 60s. What was the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition? That was basically the allegiance between the New Deal liberal Democrats that provided the expansion of state uh, resources with the New Deal and the civil rights constituency marked by the traditional uh, civil rights establishment, the NAACP, SNCC, et cetera, et cetera, so on, came out of that era hoping that the, the joining of the forces between the civil rights movement and the New Deal democratic liberal establishment would be able to carry America into the late 20th century. What, what basically happened is that because of a shift in the political economy of American capitalism, away from the Keynesian model, what was the Keynesian model? The Keynesian model was the economic model that believed that the state had a role in controlling the government to provide goods and services to the population, a pop in other words, a public goods model of governance. The belief in that form of governance was shattered at the same time the civil rights movement somewhat comes to the end and we have the rise of the Nixon administration and America moves out of the gold standard, out of what the Bretton Woods standard in which American gold, the gold-backed dollar is at the height of its salience, and we move into this new economic period which some people call neoliberalism, which is a, a very fancy, complicated word for privatization. I'm going a little long, but bear with me here. So I want to put this in context, meaning that instead of having a public goods 
form of government where the state is interested in, say, making sure you have a state union job, a state pension, uh, federal, you know, health care, uh, benefits, Social Security, the state is now not interested in providing those services and giving up whatever function that government has to the private market so now the market and the private sector is in control of those services and the state becomes less and less responsible. This type of politics starts in the 70s. There's a very good book I'm reading right now by a woman named Judith Stein. It's called The Pivotal Decade, How the United States Traded Factories for Finance in the 70s. It talks about how this shift to neoliberalism starts in the 70s. So for black people, understand something. Black people are coming out of Jim Crow, where over 60 to 65% of black labor at one point up until 1965 were sharecroppers and domestic laborers. So, they, you know, all of the civil rights advances are made in the 60s, and they're just about to begin to be able to enter into American capitalism. And at the same time, a shift happens that cuts away from the same kind of agenda that allowed the white middle class to largely be lifted out of poverty into functioning. And now black people, when they just get their foot in the door of having some level of rights, get entered into this new era where the government is saying, well, we're glad you're here, but we're cutting all of the benefits that we gave to anyone else, and now you're basically left to the market. So it creates a situation where only a small percentage of blacks who are most proximate to the middle class can benefit, and poor and working class black people ended up getting things like mass incarceration, uh, drug proliferation, underground economies, crime, so on and so forth, and that paradigm continues from the 70s. It, it explodes with the Reagan, Reagan administration in the 80s, and it continues into the Clinton administration where not only is that politics disadvantaging blacks, but now with NAFTA and GATT, where we have factory jobs that are exported outward to Mexico, China and other parts of the world, you now have a quote-unquote often fetishized white working class that becomes destabilized by neoliberalism. So this 50-year counter-revolution, and of course, as you know, as a student of history, race is often used to justify this politics, i.e., we're giving the black folk too much i.e., i.e., you're being displaced. So oftentimes, for example, the Republicans use the Southern strategy and uh, the, the Democrats via the Clinton used underclass ideology talking about how we need to have mass incarceration. So the position I'm trying to say is that during this 50-year counter-revolution, there is a bipartisan consensus that the, the era of big government is over and we're giving everything over to the private sector. What happens? In 2008, that politics explodes in the greatest financial crash that we've had since 2009, and everything that happens after that politically basically is an attempt for the American ruling class to preserve that neoliberal order, particularly through the presidency of Obama. 
what ends up happening, as I told you earlier, fascism is capitalism in decay. The inability of the ruling class, whether it's the old guard Democrats or the Clinton-Obama or the old guard Republicans or the Clinton-Obama Democrats, the inability to provide an economic well-being for large segments of American society, particularly those disgruntled white working class, gives the opening for a reactionary nationalist politics. By the way, that reactionary nationalist politics does not start with Donald Trump. The precursor to those politics were happening in Europe with the rise of UKIP, which is the right reactionary party in, in England, the rise of the Brexit discourse that starts with, with the rise of Marine Le Pen and Front National in France. You have uh, Viktor Orban in, Hung in, uh, in Hungary. You have a Golden Dawn in, in uh, Greece. You have the Five League in Italy. Eventually, we see the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil. We have uh, the uh, the Hindu fascist Modi in, in, in India. We have Duarte in the Philippines. So what I'm trying to con convey to you is as much as we realize Trump is a detestable aberration, he's actually just one star in a global constellation of reactionary right-wing nationalism that pretty much develops because of a failure of global capitalism to provide for its citizens, many of these governments, including America's, moving to austerity. Austerity, what is that? It's a fancy word for the government cuts back its services and makes you pay for the fact that the private sector basically bankrupts the economy. So Europe goes into austerity. America goes into austerity with the sequester. And this causes increased resentment particularly racial resentment with the rise of immigrants and immigration. And what happens, you have these reactionary nationalist demagogues like uh, uh, the guy who's currently the leader of uh, Great Britain, uh, Boris Johnson, and the other ones that I've already mentioned, start to say, well, it's those brown people, those black people, those Mexicans, and it's the liberals who have delivered us into this position, we need to gather around our culture, our traditions, our quote-unquote whiteness or Britishness or Frenchness or Americanness or, 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 or European Brazilian heritage or Hindu nationalism or XYZ culture of XYZ to cure what the liberals, the left, the radicals have brought upon us. So because they are just as interested in protecting capitalism as the neoliberal Democrats or liberals, they will not acknowledge to the population that the problem we have is that capitalism is contracting and not being able to provide for our citizens as effectively, and they're going to basically, say, blame the black and brown people. And what I'm, what, what I'm trying to tell you is that what ends up happening in 2016 is that that politics explodes on America's doorstep with the rise of Donald Trump, who is the American manifestation of that global phenomenon with all the ugly, treacherous, horrendous, disgusting politics that come along with it. 
And but for coronavirus, it's very possible that Trump might have likely got reelected. But the point I'm trying to convey to you is that the liberals come into power. Joe Biden is now in power. And what the liberal, the left flank of capital, the, the liberals, the you know, Biden administration have realized is that we have a generation of Americans, particularly Americans under the age of 40, the millennials who were born, born in 1980, who actually believe in their mind that the Democratic Party has been a worse administrator of the 50-year counter-revolution than Republicans because they think mass incarceration. They think NAFTA. They think GATT. Instead of realizing that this is a bipartisan Republican and Democrat consensus, they're saying because this happens right after Obama, it, they lay more of the blame on the Democrats, and the, the illusion of the Democratic Party being the party of the working class is lost, and there is no ability to really appeal. So what this forces the Biden administration to do is that they realize that if they try to govern with austerity, and what do we define austerity as? Austerity is the government program where they cut government services and basically said we've got to pay for the shortfall by supporting the private sector. Biden realizes that if they govern for austerity, with austerity, they are going to give an opening to the reactionary nationalists, meaning that in 2022, Biden may lose the, the, the Congress. In 2024, you may see Trump or something worse than Trump. So what is the Biden response? Increasing subsidies from the state. We're going to have infrastructure. We're going to pour $2 trillion into the economy. We're going to have stimulus, stimulus. I don't think that people should believe that Biden is doing this because he cares about poor and working class people, black or otherwise. My argument is that this strategic posture, the key word is posture, by the Biden administration is as a product of an understanding that the perception of the Democratic Party, i.e. the left flank of capital, is so bad that in eight, to be able to have them stop the rise of an even worse reactionary nationalism than Trump or a repeat of Trumpism, they have to at least seem like a willingness to funnel some cash into the system to stop Americans' misery, particularly black folks' misery, or else it's all over. And the reason I use the metaphor of the Weimar Republic is just like in Germany that the economic crises and the inability of the liberal left flank of capital, to control these internal contradictions, economic and otherwise, led for the ability of a reactionary right to come in and take power. What I'm saying is I think that there's a possibility that the ability of the Biden administration and the left flank of capital to control these economic contradictions, whether it's through subsidies, like stimulus or otherwise, may not work, and we may see a repeat of Trumpism or something worse than Trumpism in 2024. So I'm not saying that we're going to have Nazi, Nazis in brown shirts in 2024, but what I'm saying is that a possibly worse manifestation of this reactionary nationalism could come to power if this Biden project of trying to seem like they're interested 
in salvaging government functionality does not work. I'll stop there, and I'd like you to jump in with your thoughts. Well, you know, why don't we all just slit our throats now and (laughs) call it a day? Uh, I think, Pascal, that you have summarized it exactly. And one of the, the biggest problems that we have among our people is that they don't see it as clearly as that. And I would I would add to the narrative that you just um, expressed that one of the fundamental functions that happen is that American people began began to accept that false god uh, false god uh, that they began to accept greed acquisition of things as the measurement of looking at their the the leadership in the country and and let me take it back to the 19th uh, 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 mid-2000. I think that we had an inability to see these things, to see neoliberalism gobbling up the rights that we have to demand from our government and putting us in a position where we essentially lost our ability to have political principles that we stood on. We just accepted, we tolerated, uh, and we didn't have a game plan. The other is that, and, and, and really you can really see it at the beginning of the, um, of the Clinton administration, where we saw gold and glitter, gold and glitter, because nobody asked the question, who is this man who has governed in Arkansas? And if we look at our people who live in Arkansas and the kind of oppressive government, lack of resources under which they live, would we have supported a Bill Clinton if he had if he didn't wear a nice suit, if he didn't have a nice haircut and he looked like and he postured himself as a nice white man who understood. Then we move into the post um Clinton era and buy into the idea that this woman who was part of the previous administration might be our might be our savior. Then we go to the Obama administration and his campaign and he sold a bill of goods that you couldn't put into a ledger. And all of that as you as you just pointed out diluted our expectation of our government. Now, when you go back to all of that, it makes sense 
if you look at the Weimar uh, Republic and understand how that democracy failed, it was neoliberalism at its best. It was a, a propaganda for which people couldn't write down the benefits on a ledger. And you understand how we got a Donald Trump. So now that we're at this place, and you talk about 2020, uh, 20, uh, 20, uh, the midterms, I also believe that the Democrats will lose the Congress. And that is because, you know, during, at the end of the uh, uh, Weimar uh, Republic, there was a huge fire in Berlin. Is that right? Where, exactly. And, and I kind of see the similarities of that, which was a major, major party um, uh, uh, building. It was the seat of the government, and it was burned to a crisp, and it was burned by, well, it, it's hard to say who it was burned by, but it was, it was assumed that it was by the Nazi party who was starting to garner um, mm-hmm. uh, votes, in the, um, votes in the parliament. And, and I kind of see the similarities of that with the January 6th riot at our Capitol building. What do you think? Well, what's even it's interesting, and I was talking to a friend of your show and a friend of mine, Torre Reed, and his, his metaphor for the January 6th riot is uh, Adolf Hitler's beer putsch. If you don't know what the beer putsch was happening that before the Reichstag was an attempt that Hitler did to kind of uh, uh, fail coup d'etat by the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler uh, in, in Germany where he gets basically he, and he gets caught but they give him a slap on the wrist. And Torre's metaphor is that when he looks at the uh, the January 6th kind of attempted coup by Trump, he looks at it as a kind of Trump inversion of the Beer Hall Putsch of November of 1923, where it was an attempt of a kind of coup d'etat as well, and Trump gets a slap on the wrist. So there are all, I mean, I've all, I know people personally who've made the metaphor between certain aspects of Trumpism, the German Nazi phenomenon. Now, I, I mean, there are many people, there are many intellectuals who are going around with this kind of intellectual kind of like, I kind of call it, I think it's a mental masturbation. Is Trump a fascist? If he's not a fascist, no, we shouldn't call Trump a fascist. No, this is not the Weimar Republic. I'm not really interested in the particularities of arguing that whether or not Trump is like Mussolini or, or, or Hitler. But the one thing none of them will deny is that Donald Trump is a reactionary nationalist. That's a fact. He is a right-wing reactionary nationalist, just like all of these leaders are right-wing reactionary nationalists. And I think that is a mistake for intellectuals and academics to be so fixated on, on navel-gazing to 
try to compete with who has a better analysis of whether Trump is Hitler or Mussolini to understand that we don't necessarily need Trump or any of these right-wing nationalists to be like Hitler or Mussolini in the 21st century. Politics and political phenomenon evolve and develop in different ways in different times. In a digital kind of social media age, we don't necessarily need a two million brown shirt foot soldier troop uh, to say that, oh, America is reaching a kind of fascist moment. I'm not as interested in that, that type of, you know, pseudo precision. What I do realize is that what Trumpism, what and the rise of this reactionary nationalism. And I understand, I'm not trying to, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to diminish the importance of Trump in this, but I'm trying to put Trump in a constellation of, and I want, it's important for me to get you on this to realize that this is an international phenomenon. Trump yes. is just one of the manifestations of this global phenomenon of reactionary nationalism. Okay, it's very important to understand. This is a global phenomenon. You see this in England. You see this in France. You see this in Hungary. These parties are. You see it in, 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 in Brazil. You see it in India. You see it in the Philippines. These reactionary nationalists are taking hold of governments throughout the world because the, the left flank of capital parties are unable to create an economic option to right-wing nationalism because quite often, whether it's in England, whether it's in America, whether it's in Europe, the liberal parties have been wedded to the same economic agenda that caused the misery of the population just as much as the right-wing parties have been. So whether it's the Labor Party in England or the Tories, the Democratic Party in America or the Republicans, that this neoliberal consensus, hyper-marketization, hyper-privatization was bipartisan. And, and what the, the, the crisis is, is that no one buys the arguments that the liberal flank of capital is a better manager of the affairs because in the minds of the population who is becoming angrier and more reactionary, they're saying things like all those people do is care about the brown people, the black people, and they're the ones taking our jobs, or they're the ones who are crying about, you know, uh, uh, you know, police or critical race theory. They're the ones who are sponsoring cancer culture. All of that pseudo-politics, whether it's cancer culture, whether it's wokeness, all of that pseudo-politics is a diversion from the fact that we have two parties in most two flanks of capital that have been wedded to an economic agenda, that have been grounding black, brown, and white people to dust, but the reactionary right, because they use racial dog whistles, has used that type of politics to get a foothold in the consciousness of their overall populations to basically say that it's those liberals that have got you here and they are the problem with their politics and their policies 
policies and their tolerance, and they're destroying our culture. They're destroying our values. Their openness to transgenderism is, is, is putting our men in, in jeopardy. There's another factor to this that's very important. Very few people are just talking about it. One of the appeals to fascism and reactionary nationalism is to a perceived crisis of masculinity. And Janice, if you, I, I, we're going to talk about implore, it. We, I implore you to it. realize that there is a cross-racial. It's not just white boys, black, Latino. There is a cross-racial sense amongst young men in this country that they're being displaced by women, they're being displaced by the gay, they're being displaced by the transgender, they can't replicate their granddaddy's vision of patriarchy, which was a myth anyway, and they are being appealed to by reactionary, alt-right and right-wing personalities, some black and some white, and I personally believe that that type of discourse is also going to help to fuel this rise of reactionary nationalism. And it already has, Pascal. Of course. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, I'm right here. But but let me remind... um, Uh, those who are listening to this conversation, to understand that the Nazis were never elected to power. In the election in the fall of 1932 in Germany, they had already lost a significant percentage of their support that they had gained the summer before, and the Nazi party was in disarray. But they came to power because the establishment conservative elite, the Koch brothers, folks, uh, powerful men around the, the then president, Hindenburg, handed power over to the Nazis. And that alliance is what killed the Democratic Republic. And, and, and I think that... Um, my, my worries, Pascal, are more about in the U.S. in the sense that the threats to democracy are not going to come from abroad. The most dangerous threat is, going to co- is coming from within, and that was certainly the case in Weimar, especially in the last years. And what worries me is when certain people or institutions – mouth talk of democracy, but in, in, in reality undermine the very practices of democracy. A good example is what the Board of Trustees did at the University of North Carolina this week in regard to our sister who wrote the, who headed the uh, Project 1619. And of course the Nazis were never committed to democracy, but they used populist rhetoric that resonated with people. Um, But um, the analogy that does worry me that you've presented, and it worries me greatly, is when establishment conservatives, and that includes the media, that includes the corporations, 
that make radical conservatives like the Proud Boys and the others and even the Ku Klux Klan acceptable in polite society. I think to a certain extent that that has happened in the United States when conservatives, establishment conservatives, and I'm not just talking about the GOP. I'm talking about the Federalist Society. I'm talking about universities and colleges go beyond the bounds of legitimate democratic discourse and constitutional provisions and make the programs, the individuals and ideas of radical conservatives acceptable. And I think that's why we're in trouble. I mean, I, 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 what, I, I agree with you 100%. But what's more stunning to me is I don't think people understand how many state legislatures in this country are absolutely completely captured by reactionary right-wing governments and how all of these efforts, whether it's, quote-unquote, stopping you know, critical, race, critical race theory, regardless of what you think about it, stopping the 1619 box, stopping, uh, 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 you know, voting, you know, anti-voting, you know, voter suppression tactics. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's more what makes this moment more precarious to me is that the, this reactionary white, right-wing uh, faction is already politically institutionalized in the majority of the state governing houses, at least there is them, in the country. Yep, yep. You know, we've been talking about that so much here at Our Common Ground, that while the Democrats were trying to figure out who they were, the GOP was in the background organizing their army at the state level organizing their armies at the local level and putting together the campaign to crush people like Ilhan Omar. I mean, and pushing Josh Hawley and Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and Marjorie Green and that Lara Bohart, whatever her name is, person. And those are people sitting in our Congress, white nationalists, sitting in our Congress and being held up and supported. And this new person, uh, Stephanie, what, what's her name, Stelfanik or whoever took out Liz Cheney. And then our media, Pascal, is making Liz Cheney a hero. A hero, Liz Cheney. Yeah. So you have to be real concerned, and and I think that what black people really have to do is rejected, 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 push back on it, resist it and not try to compromise on it. You know, um, we did a show here, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago after Tim Scott was the response to the State of the Union and his comments and his analysis uh, being 
the puppet to carry the water on issues of race in this country. So I, I think we have to be really, I think we have to be terribly worried about what transactional government, political transactions are going on. We have to, we have to question uh, President Joe Biden about, you know, I, I got some notes here. Um, H.R. 1 is not law today. The George Floyd uh, police reform bill is not law today. The minimum wage is still $7.50. But we're being told and we have accepted the line that for $1,400, Joe Biden is the man. Well, I think that anyone, and let's make this clear, right? This is bigger than just Biden, but Biden is, a, is, is, is the current leader of the moment. Anyone well, he got the wheel, who, so, you know, yeah. he gets no pass from me. No, I'm not saying, I, believe me, I mean, I think you know enough about my politics. Well, I'm not going to give him or any of the Democrat or Republican a pass. But what I'm trying, what's very important for, for me to try to con- convey to your audience is that uh, there, there, there is no safe haven politically here, and the only thing that can be done is uh, is to put on your boxing gloves and your marching shoes to fight and combat here, and and and, and what the question becomes: Who are you fighting with, and who exactly is aware of the problem? Because what what I see as a problem is that so many of us, rightfully so, despise Trump and wanted the Trump out, but many folks did not have a critical engagement. Okay, Trump is going to get be out, but what exactly are we getting with these Democrats that we're having coming in, and why are we simply going to be lulled? to sleep with another symbolic, whether it's Chucks and Pearls vis-a-vis uh, uh, Kamala Harris or look, oh, Biden has a new you know, transgender member on his administration or, oh, my God, the black guy in, star, in charge of the Pentagon is so wonderful with his bombs with red, black, and green stripes on them. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, that politics has to die, man. That, 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 that vapid because that vapid uh, symbolic politics is what put too many to people to sleep, whether it was via, via, vis-a-vis Obama, whether it was vis-a-vis people like Clyburn, whether it was that whole kind of like the first black this, the first black that, or we have black. I mean, listen, I am not saying that we should not have black elected officials. What I'm saying is that the assumption that simply having a black person X, Y, Z being there translates into effective politics for the majority of poor and working class people, particularly black people, is a myth. And we have to really start start collapsing that myth in the minds of these communities and start making them ask, what are the policy projections coming out here that are going to change the affairs 
of poor and working class black people who are the majority of black people, and we need, and I'm, now this might sound controversial to you, we need to stop framing black politics from the perspective of people like myself and yourself who are multiply degreed, educated, you know, pedigreed folks who have a vested interest in seeing people like us getting C-suite jobs, whether it's in the private sector or K-street jobs in the government, because that politics is dead, man. Because, and again, this might sound controversial to you, black politics in the post-civil rights era and maybe before has been a class politics. And the class of black people it's been about protecting ain't working class and poor black people. I'm sorry. And that's why you see 17% of younger black men saying, I'm voting for Trump, and even 6 or 7 or 8% of black women. And that's why you see all of this discourse where people would have the Democrats. Of course the Democrats have been horrible. The Republicans have been horrible too. But the question, the problem we have right now is that we have a generation, a couple of generations of black people who have never seen or don't even believe in any kind of effective black politics. And frankly, their criticism legitimate. It's not an illegitimate criticism. The generation of black folk who came out of the civil rights movement who were proximate to the middle class or upper, upper working class, maybe a better job, who benefited from that affirmative action, who benefited from the expansion of those jobs, who got some of those great society government jobs in the early 70s that lifted them into the black political class, yeah, that, that small cadre of black folk, yeah, they did okay. Some of them got their nice houses in PG County, Maryland. Some of them got their nice houses in, in Jamaica, Queens, in the suburbs. Yeah, some of them were able to send their kids to college. But what I'm saying is that the large majority of poor working class black folk saw heroin, crack, mass incarceration, family destabilization, single parent families, poverty, the war on drugs, underclass ideology, and democratic administrations, whether they be in Chicago, New York, or California, that basically did nothing for them except criminalize them. And we have a whole generation of black upper working class, because I know you don't like the term black middle class folk, who went along and sang along with that politics because they could say, oh, look, we got five Democrats that look like us that are in the administration now. That has been a problem, Janice. Yeah, that, that has been a problem. It is legitimately um, one for which we can criticize and whine about. But you're talking to somebody who sat in Gary, Indiana in 1968. Two of the major agenda items in that meeting of more than 500 black people was a black third independent party, political party, and reparations. I have been through how many decades, I'm trying to, but it's been too many, and each time we come up to any kind of major election, 
national election, you have to sit back and ask, what are the options for black people? And I have had to gruelingly sit through them and think it's not the independent third party and it's not reparations on the agenda. So, I, you know, sometimes, Pascal, I envision this problem in this way, that there are two houses. One of them is a shotgun house where there is prostitution, drugs, and um, all kinds of criminal, criminal elements who visit and live there. Right next door, there is a house, and the people build gardens. There, there are curtains on the, on the on the on the door, on the windows. The children go to school every morning, and the mommy and daddy go to work every morning. They come home, and they have dinner. So the whole collection of black people in America are standing in front of these houses, and they are invited into both of them. And what do they choose? Those are the choices. Well, then I would argue that we got to make better choices. We got we got to expand the options. <laughs> I would that's, argue that's, that's, we got to build another house just, on what, the block. What you're saying is that basically your choice is between arsenic and a shotgun in terms of what your options are. That's that's well, that's, that's, well, that's see. My when I look at that picture, I look at. How do we get enough credit at Lowe's to go get some cement blocks and some lumber or wherever to build another house? Okay, I, I'm with you there, and I don't disagree with that, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But all right, all right. In other words, I understand the project that you are willing and think that needs to be done. My goal in this conversation is to tell you that there, and I know you may know this, maybe don't, is that there is a generation of folk, particularly black folk, who are not interested in that plot project. They're becoming more and more interested in hearing what the reactionary right has to say. Well, the reactionary right, the reactionary right is not talking about building another house. No, they're not. But what they what they're saying is that the people who helped you build the houses you had before, look, what has that gotten you? And look how bad your communities are. And because folks don't in, don't are not interested in reading their political history, and because as Fanon said, the oppressed will always believe about them the worst about themselves, they will say, yeah. That's why black people are messed up. That's why our communities don't work. That's why, because, oh, it's those Democrats. It's those white liberals. And I'm not saying that's not, they don't have responsibility at all, but because those folks are not going to realize, you know, listen, this was, this was beyond liberals 
or this is a bipartisan. This is across the board. We have been getting screwed over by both sides. And for us to believe one side that the line that the wolf is somehow going to be better than the fox is ridiculous. And the question becomes, how do we create a political reality where we realize that both sides are the enemy and force them to make concessions and for and, and pay attention yeah. to our demands yeah. regardless of whichever one is in there. And what I'm saying which which I think is what you're talking about in terms of building a third house and what I find problematic is that I don't see enough interest in, quote, unquote, building that third house. I see a lot of people being uh, attracted to the bells and whistles of these reactionary right-wingers because they, quote, unquote, they appeal to my manhood. They're not soft like the Democrats. Or they don't give or they, they're not tolerating yeah. that transgender gay stuff. Or, you know, or, or, or they, they don't co-sign the feminist agenda or et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. And, and what I'm telling you is that and I'm, I'm not saying I agree with those arguments, but I'm telling you that people are buying those arguments. Yep. And we're going to have to in, talk it. They are Look, in, and they are in what you are referring to as the black community. We're going to talk about it on the other side of this break, but one of the things that I want to point out that undergirds in this discussion and our episode title, Black in America's Weimar Moment, is that is exactly why. the Nazis were able to destroy the, democ- the Democratic Republic in Germany in 1933. Our guest tonight is Pascal Robert, and I am so glad to have him back in the sanctuary. He has been an Our Common Ground voice since 2013, and we really miss him. I hope Jason is missing, is listening because, Jason, you know I'm going to keep re- recruiting. This is Our Common Ground, and we'll be right back. We're going to take a break. Right now we're going to, and we want to highlight uh, the death of the comedic writer and performer, Paul Mooney. I want you to stop this ghost stuff. TV, you're obsessed with it. The ghost channel, celebrity ghosts. The ghosts touch me. I slept with the ghosts. The ghosts kiss me. Real ghost stories. Ghosts, ghosts, international ghosts. Ghosts that don't speak English. Ghosts. White folks, there are no ghosts. There are no ghosts. It's all in your mind. Get off the meth and the crack. There are no ghosts. There are no ghosts, white folks, and I can prove it. If there were ghosts, slaves would come back and fuck you up. You do know that. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. It's got to be real. 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 It's
because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I'm all about that. Obama says we're not going to have boots on the ground, but now you got over a thousand soldiers. You know why there's going to be more? Because they're going to start killing some of those that we've already pulled there now. Because if you can't get 30,000 Shiites to stand their ground and they're fully armed, just a thousand Sunni, and they drop their weapons, drop their uniforms, Drop the draws and run. What have you got? Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. The Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. Fridays, 10 p.m. Just damn. Advanced political pushback. Talk radio on TruthWorks Network. Three Fridays. He's all about politics. 10 p.m. TruthWorks How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to Truth. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Broadcasting bold, brave, black. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Join us each Saturday, 10 p.m. A program note for your interest in the month of June 2021, Our Common Ground will host a series of discussion on the issue of reparations for descendants of the American chattel slavery system. Joining us will be Dr. William Sandy Darity, Dr. Derek Hamilton, Dr. Ron Daniels in COBRA, and additionally, we'll be examining the activities related 
H.R. 40 and the Congressional Black Caucus. We hope you'll join us. Look at her. She's a bad Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Malcolm X, David Walker, Jeremiah Wright, the women as well, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Queen Audley Mother Moore, Septima Clark, Daisy Bates, these women were revolutionary lionesses in their hearts. They They would eat you, to. they would destroy you in terms of you being an obstructionist to black people. These women trained a little boy named Martin Luther King. Septima Clark, I think it was, or Daisy Bates, took King to the uh, Highlander Folk, uh, Folk School, sorry, in Tennessee, when King was a very young guy. These women had already been trained in these tactics. So I'm trying to get you to understand. Black people, when we were brought here as slaves, we were not expected to survive, and lucky for them we did, because if we were not here, America would be dead already right now, because white America ain't got nothing left to offer it but negativity, violence. And now back to Our Common Ground. And we thank you so very much for being with us, joining us, spending your Saturday evening with us, and closing out the day. Our guest tonight is Pascal Robert, the thought merchant, the hour common ground interlocutor. And he is bringing us to some truths, bold and brave that we need to understand, and I hope that uh, all of you will spread the word that we still bring the fire at our common ground. (laughs) That's for you, Jason. We got the fire. (laughs) Uh, A reminder that the month of June, we're going to be spending on an educational adventure with you on the issue of reparations for the descendants of slaves under the American chattel slave uh, system. And we hope that you will join us. It will be every Saturday night for the month. And join Alpha. Alpha had to fire last night uh, at TruthWorks Network uh, on the Alpha show, 10 p.m. Friday night. Also want to do a shout out. Um, I have recently been reunited with my eighth grade algebra teacher in the segregated South at Roosevelt High School, and uh, he is now uh, an attorney. But I want to shout out to his granddaughter, Emma Catherine Russell who today gathered with her family in Jupiter, Florida, to celebrate her graduation from high school. She was homeschooled most of her life. 
and her family gathered today to fate her in her completion of her studies. Uh, and we want to say to Catherine, to Emma Catherine Russell, congratulations to you. Also, this week we had a black anniversary. I don't know if it's a black anniversary for y'all, but it was a black anniversary for me. And it was the 50th anniversary of this. I just want to ask the question, who really can save a world in despair? Who really can? Yeah, it was the 50th. Can you believe it's been 50 years since that song was released by Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? And it is so apropos, continuing through all of these years. I know, Pascal, you were a big fan of Paul Mooney. Yes, I was. What's your take on how you're feeling about his death. He was pretty young. Uh, 79, I mean, depends on, you know, I mean, he lived longer than a lot of black men do in America at 79, frankly. But um, I was uh, I was taken aback by Paul Mooney's death. I had known he had been ill for a while, and uh, I have been a fan of, of Paul Mooney as a comedian, really, from my, you know, early years uh, in, in the 80s. You know, I'm a... I'm a child of, of the Black Power era. You know, I was born towards the end of the 60s. So I remember that kind of golden age of black comedy with Richard Pryor, Flip Wilson, you know, all of that kind of 70s generation as well. And uh, Paul Mooney had a very, very no-holds-barred uh, attitude towards America's racial history. And uh, he spoke, and I, I, it was always important for me to realize that Paul Mooney was originally from Louisiana. And I, I have a, an affection for black folks from Louisiana because I always feel that black folks from Louisiana have a very particular understanding of race and class in America that uh, gives them certain insights that some folk may not have. And uh, it, it was never lost on me that his early childhood was spent in that area and I always have some affection to him because of that. But uh, when I saw, I mean, he was really kind of the architect of uh, black comedic infrastructure that we have over the last 50 years. And uh, it's a major loss. I don't think we will ever have uh, a comedian like Paul Mooney again. Uh, uh, And I think that uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, Sad that he died, but I think that people really should go back and listen to his comedy and listen to his commentary uh, about, you know, his position uh, on American society in terms of what he witnessed and what he saw. You know, he's a man who lived through Jim Crow segregation, who lived from the South, saw Hollywood, 
and its various iterations of racism for up close and personal. And uh, I admired, I, I admired Paul Mooney a, a great deal, as I'm sure many people in your audience did. You know, uh, um, I, I think it was it was a very, very serious loss to me. I had his biography that he wrote. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine who worked for a, uh, a publisher sent it to me years ago, and uh, you know, he was a uh, he was a uh, very he's, he he is uh, he was unapologetically black. <laughs> I think that you could say in terms of his uh absolutely view, uh in terms mm-hmm. of how he uh I remember watching a documentary on Paul Mooney and he was in Harlem because he had a residence in Harlem as well and I vividly remember as someone who grew up in New York he was talking about you know I love Harlem I love New York and he would say all the time he's like you know the reason I love Harlem and I love New York is the the black people here are not ashamed to be black they like they they embrace being black, and I found mm-hmm. that very, very interesting that he would say that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of these figures who kind of come from the 60s era into the black power era and have come into this 50-year counter-revolution, you know, those that generation, you know, Paul Mooney, you know, is the same generation as my mom. And, uh, you know, I, I I got my early political education from the black people who came out of the 60s, whether it was coming out of, you know, the radical internationalisms, you know, talking about Fanon, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, what was called Pan-Africanism, was talking about, you know, the black power movement, the civil rights movement. Those people were always around. I think about Bruce Dixon as well, even people like yourself. And when I think about the contemporary political moment and how we're losing so many folks that came out of that era, and we should, I'm not saying we should romanticize everyone, but my point is, is that there was a certain kind of clarity that those folks have that I think is missing from younger generations. And I look at, I mean, I guess people would consider me Generation X, and I look at Generation People look at my generation of black folk, the younger folk, as the elders now. That scares me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll be very, very frank with you. I'm 52 years old. Uh, some people may think I'm old. Some people think I'm young. I think to you I'm young. And the fact that people look at my generation as the elders actually doesn't make me feel good because um, I, when I was 21, 22, 23, People who were who I considered elders in the black community, who were people who you know marched with who were in SNCC, people who were Tuskegee Airmen, people who were you know uh, acolytes of Malcolm, people who were in the Panthers, people who came from all various sides, people who were early vanguards in the Muslim community, people who came from all various aspects and trajectories of serious black movement struggle. And and I'm going to, some people may think I'm being cynical. I really don't care. When I look at people who are my age who actually believe that hip-hop music is their contribution to the black liberation struggle, I find that problematic. I find that problematic. Posturing in blackness. Posturing in blackness. 
But, you know, it's interesting that you say that because when I was in my 50s, um, there was such a gap between the generation that struggles uh, on the ideology of black freedom and black liberation that we didn't have that problem. We weren't seen at age 55 as um, elders because there was such a big gap with since the between the black liberation movement and and your generation that there was nobody to even consider us as elders we were just the people who did stuff you see what well, I'm the, saying the thing is though, the big difference though is that your generation, you know, and you are, a, you know, you lived during the Black Power era, the later parts of the, the 60s civil rights movement, is that you're growing up and you're living in three, four generations of black movement politics. You probably have people in your family who were in activist circles in the black community in the 30s, in the 20s, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And what I'm, what I'm saying yep. is that, my generation is a generation, and not even just me, people who are even, anyone who was born in the 60s and younger, we have no organic connection to any real black movement politics. Absolutely. That's yep. Yep, that's the gap that I'm talking about. That's the gap that I'm talking about. But you said something interesting in the first page, and I want to go back to it, and that is that there is a rise, a a surging going on about black masculinity, which is leading people to believe that they have no one in the radical left. I mean, I've been in the radical left, I mean, I went from SNCC to the Black Panther Party um, easily. Uh, it, it, it was just a progression. So let's talk about that for a minute, and then I want to talk about people posturing in blackness. Um, and I want to spend some time with you on the uh, Ronald Green case, which has just come up out of Monroe, Louisiana. So, so go back to the point that you were making, Pascal, um, about what this generation really how they are getting confused. Real confused. Well, what I what I, what I find in in my interactions, conversations, and and engagement with the, the the millennial black males, we're talking about black males born after 1980, is that, mm-hmm. first of all, and I'm not saying, by the way, my position is not to justify these sentiments. They have a significant amount of resentment towards the way in which they feel that leadership of all issues dealing with black people are being rendered to not only feminine people, but people who are of sexual orientations that they find threatening 
or, or unacceptable to their quote-unquote notions of masculinity, whether that's Black Lives Matter, and I have profound critiques of Black Lives Matter, but it's not rooted in that. But, they, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Black Girl Magic, or the way the Democratic Party is, uh, uh, and I think it's a cynical use of black womanhood to become a front for their very milquetoast politics. The bottom line is that these younger uh, some of these younger black men feel like the Democratic Party has no vested interest in their issues, their concerns. And I'll be very frank with you. The Democratic Party is, in the 2020 election, it's clear to me that they recognized that they had a black male problem. And I'll tell you why I knew that. When I saw that Kamala Harris was doing these barbershop tours all over the country, as a part of the campaign, when I started seeing people who, you know, are kind of status quo commentators like Roland Martin talking about, you know, they got to do outreach. I mean, people who are like, I mean, total kind of centrist, Angela Rye, all these talking about like, they need to do more black male outreach. I was like, you know, these people realize they have a crisis here because they understand that there's a segment of black men here who are checking out of the Democratic Party. Now, my position is that a lot of people was like, oh, it's because black men are patriarchal. And, you know, men are patriarchal, period. But part of the reality is, is quite frankly, some of the worst policy agendas of the Democratic Party, particularly mass incarceration, had a material effect on black males that resonates in a way that it does not resonate with other segments of the black community. That's part of it. And I think that because there's always this perception that black manhood is under attack or being devalued in American society, which does have historical precedence, it's not accidental that during the 60s in the Civil Rights Movement that black men were walking around with signs saying, I am a man. There's a reason for that. Okay? Let's, let's make that clear. So taking that history into the into context, a lot of these young black men who are, I think, demonstrating serious insecurity and because, because many of them perhaps did not have a male figure in their life or did not have father figures to the larger extent than guys who were my age did, I was happy, happy, I was very fortunate to have a father in my household, that this crisis of masculinity discourse paranoia, whatever you want to call it, whether you think it's legitimate or not, is not being engaged in a way in which the phenomenon are being explained and it's being challenged into this kind of reactionary masculine posturing that basically is easily being used by the reactionary right because they're already framing their politics on a crisis of masculinity, white male or otherwise, anyway. So mm-hmm. this whole part of this was all, this, this also worked with, you know, when Hillary was running, I think we saw a lot of that as well. There was clearly misogyny and why she wasn't supported, but that really took off, you know, concepts like intersectionality, so on and so forth. So this type of... Uh, this type of sentiment is very tang- it's very tangible, it's very real, and I think that there's an inability 
of thought leaders in the black community to have this conversation without trying to turn these young men into a pathology. And frankly, too many of the people that are interviewed, whether they're academics or otherwise, do that in a way where they're simply trying to point fingers at these men and say things like, oh, they just want to be like white men. It's more complicated than that. There's a material basis for these these insecurities and problems, and I think that there is not a healthy conversation being made about this phenomenon and to some of these young brothers to explain to them exactly why uh, taking refuge in this reactionary politics is no better. Many of them have a very perverted sense of ideological phenomenon like black nationalism, and they use you know, little snippets of videos and histories, whether it be from Malcolm X or Mount Fluish Farrakhan, to try to legitimate a political posture that plays right into this reactionary right wing. Uh, and by the way, I'm not even saying, I'm, my position is not that any of these guys should trust, I don't trust liberals, I don't trust conservatives. My politics are to the left of all of them. Some people would call my politics radical, whatever. You know, how how, how people do my politics is less, less important than the clarity I have about my own politics. But my larger point is that these phenomena are real, and I don't think people understand how much does the reactionary right, which is premised on using masculine insecurity to generate a political project, is capitalizing on that, even in black spaces. Mm-hmm. Let me let me um, go back to something, a point that you made earlier, and it has to do with the cultural importance that that particular generation that you're talking about has placed on hip-hop and rap music as a voice. Uh, and And then perhaps there may be a vacuous space uh, that can explain that this that particular character the category, uh, character of the people that you're talking about these these young men is that they are not seeing they're seeing black male voices in the public square that are voices of resistance, but it is not the message that they think is important, so they dismiss, you know, people like Jelani Cobb, people like Tanahishi Coates, they dismiss Michael Eric Dyson, Cornell West, and it's not that they dismiss them. I I disagree that they, they don't dismiss them but they are not in the language which entitles them to a uh, a modicum of aspiration. Well, I mean, this is very, and I'm, I'm very glad we're having this conversation. We talked about this earlier on our show, this this this, this is Revolution podcast today. There's there's a very recent phenomenon, and you may not be aware of it, that heightens this particular uh, issue in black men. I don't know if you've been watching this uh, discourse by this brother named Kwame Brown. Kwame Brown was a former basketball player who uh, yes, played in yes. basketball mm-hmm. for 12 years. Okay. 
He may be using rather colorful language and so on and so forth. He's, I'm, I'm not arguing that he's been erudite, intellectual, or whatever. But he has struck a nerve in a large segment of black young black males who are active in digital spaces because he is saying, basically, he is couching the way he was treated as a teenage basketball player in an argument that black male voices in corporate capitalist media are dispatched to play psychological warfare against black masculinity. And he's Mm -hmm. not totally incorrect. He's not totally incorrect at all in that assessment Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. one of my uh, critiques of media and popular culture, and I think you've heard me say this before, and I've done writing on this, is that media and popular culture are in in an American capitalist society are not created to edify you or or build you up. They are created to socially control you. They're social control mechanisms. Well, well, that that that's the nature of of marketing. Absolutely. Yep. yep. Absolutely. And Pascal, I'd like to, I'd like for you to come back and talk more with us. Maybe, you know, maybe Kwame uh, Brown um, um, would be willing to join us. I don't know Kwame Brown, but I I do know some people that know Kwame Brown. Um, I can call one of my basketball friends, but. Um, because I think it's really important, you know, and I'm especially interested in it because as people in, 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 in our audience tonight, we have grandsons and uh, we have sons and we have nephews. And I do not think that we reach out to them um, where they stand, I wanna, you know. I, I, I wanna, always yeah, say I, I, that you have to meet black people where they where they, where they are. You can't assume your own character characteristics and think that they're going to come that you're in the right place. And it's you know, and I and I ascribe that around poor black people who don't work and have no job. Working poor black people, people, black people who have to depend in some way on the resources of our government, and 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 black people who have to live their lives so that they survive their employers and the environment in which they run their businesses. So, I'd like for you to come back if you would. Let's see if we can get Kwame. Brown and some others who are talking about this because you are absolutely right. I am seeing it. I am seeing it on, in the social media platforms, even the ones I don't know how to work, like the TikTok and the Instagram um, that give me a headache. I was in Facebook hell 
uh, being held captive for a whole day the other day trying to do something on Facebook. So I, I hope that you will. will. But um, and, and it is not a matter. It, 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 sometimes it's a matter of demographics that overwhelm people. But we cannot allow it to become embedded. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. No, this, this, these, are yeah. serious, these are serious problems. And yep. part of the problem, frankly, that these, most of these young black men feel is that when you have black voices, like the names you mentioned, whether it's Coase, Mark Lamont Hale, Michael Eric Dyson, they will say, and I'm not going to say they won't, that these people are caping for the liberal democratic agenda. Whether it's be whether mm-hmm. it's trans the trans agenda, the gay agenda, the feminist agenda, and they get no credibility. Mm-hmm. And s- some of those men are you know are are supporters of those things. And I'm not saying that they, I'm mm-hmm. not trying. I'm not my, my goal here is not to judge right, wrong, or otherwise. I'm making an analysis of the phenomenon. And mm-hmm. these young black men feel that those particular agendas are not interested in their voices and are posing a, a politics that threatens their survival. That mm-hmm. is how and they it's, feel. It's, and it's I'm not saying they're right it's, it's a critical element when I continue to pose and challenge black people about having a black political infrastructure. We can't let anybody escape. No, I, I mean, listen, my position my position is not to I'm not trying to say whether they're right, wrong or otherwise. I'm not I'm telling you that this is the phenomenon, this is the reality. And the only thing you get from these voices who are who are financed whether through liberal foundations or liberal media, is that all oh, these men are homophobic? They're misogynist. They're this and that and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And that's not that's not answering the question. That's not solving yep, the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to put it on the agenda at our common ground. Uh, and Pascal, I must tell you, you are you. I mean, the experiences that you've had over the last what you've been at this is revolution for what six months. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It really has groomed uh, your 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 your. Um, Presence as a guest. Thank you. It's really good. Oh, Thank I'm, you, Dave. I'm very honored. I'm very honored <laughs> that you feel that. But way. we do miss you here, you know. But I know shit happens. Uh, I'm I'm gonna play a clip now, and I want to warn all of you. It's very graphic. It's very heartbreaking. Of the savagery against a young man who was killed by Louisiana state troopers two years ago. And to set it up, I'm going to tell you that the official police report filed by the officers involved indicated that this young man, his name is Ronald Green, died as a result of injuries sustained in a car accident 
following, which resulting from a high-speed chase by the police. So, and and Pascal, I I want to hear your impression and hear your response about what we need to do in these United States of America and the murdering of black people under the cover of law. Mr. Green was to some degree, even though he had just finished uh, leading police officers on a, a lengthy and a high-speed chase, his inclination at that particular point was to acquiesce to what the officers wanted. Let me see your hands. Put your hands behind your back, Give me your fucking hands. Put your hands What's problematic for me uh, is that Mr. Green is now left on the ground, on his stomach, handcuffed in a prone position, and officers are trained throughout the United States that once there's a struggle of this nature, the individual's handcuffed, that you need to push him off onto his side or get him in a sitting position so you can um, allow that breathing to be unimpeded by his own body weight. And that didn't happen for at least, based on my calculation, nine minutes, where Mr. Green was left alone. And then when he wasn't left alone and he tried to get over onto his side, another trooper pushed him down using his foot against the lower back and buttocks of Mr. Green. And I didn't understand that. There was absolutely no reason for that. Under no circumstances should Mr. Green have been drugged by his ankle shackles. That was malicious, sadistic completely unnecessary, and the officer that did it is going to have to be held accountable.
Pascal? Yes, ma'am. Hello? I have a... Every time I go back and I watch the video, which was leaked to the Associated Press, this man was pleading with a black officer, pleading with him, saying, I'm your brother. Please, Lord Jesus, I'm your brother. I don't know when in this country that I, I, I always think about the pussy the pussy march that happened the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated, and I'm wondering where are the pussy people, where's the Black Lives Matter people. This particular murder was more savage, more hateful, more loud than the murder of George Floyd. And there are officers who were on the scene who are still employed. Officer that on his uh, cam, video cam, body cam, who said, who was telling his boss on the telephone, I beat the fuck out of him. And there, uh, uh, and he was, and he was killed in a car accident um, before he was fired. But how do we begin to move? Our own community, our poli- you know, this is why we don't have a political infrastructure. So nobody, I mean, Joe Biden used George Floyd to get elected, but he hasn't made a statement in regard to this. And this happened two years ago while the the Louisiana state troopers including the leadership, lied about it for two years. And I'm I'm really emotional about it tonight because I saw the photograph of his body today for the first time. So if we if, if we can't move this government about this What are our odds? I mean, it's a very complicated question, right? Because, you know, for me, the larger reality comes to the fact that the government, bipartisan, is is always going to be vested in protecting the sanctity of police because police protect property and capital, and they discipline the poor and working class to 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 to, to basically prepare them for their ultimate place to be housed, which is prison. And that functionality is innate to the nature of the economy that we have. So the question that becomes the case is that how do we reform an institution that is designed to protect an economic system that requires that a large segment 
of people who are poor and working class, but largely look like us who are black and brown, are ground to powder. And that internal contradiction is something that I don't think has been effectively dealt with because, you know, I hear people say abolish the police. Okay, listen, I'm more interested in abolishing the social phenomenon that make police necessary. Poverty, which leads to crime. Social dislocation, which leads to crime, which leads to mental health crises. I'm more interested in investing in the economic infrastructure to make the quality of life of poor and working class people, particularly black and brown people, healthy, so that the ideological superstructure of our communities does not tell a 16-year-old kid that it's more logical to sell crack and get an M16 than to get a decent job or want to go to school, or it's a white kid to say, I want to sell meth instead of saying, I want to do X, Y, Z, or, you know, get a trade, because we're not simply dealing with poverty. We're dealing with communities where the whole social reality gives particularly young men the belief that criminality is the healthy option. And when we have such absolute social dislocation, I don't think people understand that the state is only interested in using policing to ship that redundant community to prison. So my question becomes is that what exactly are the efforts we have in shaping a politics that demands that the priorities of the system change in its economic and social hierarchy. Simply saying defund the police or abolish the cops are words because you're going to find that when you go to these black communities and you ask them, as was done by Pew Research, they don't want the cops to go. Mm-hmm, they don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. L- let's talk about it in the context of black people. And you and I have had a lot of discussions about posturing in blackness. How can we, I mean, last summer was demonstrations and protests, but as a result, the hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag justice for George Floyd, hashtag justice for a whole bunch of people has not resonated in radical change. How do we begin to get black people to understand that it is only radical change that's going to make a difference? Or I think instance, the first thing we I think the first thing an, we need for to, instance. Let me give you for instance. If all of the people who protested last summer for justice for George Floyd would go back in the street and threaten this government, this administration, Joe Biden would be talking about H.R. 1 and would be talking about the George Floyd bill and and making it happen 
from his vantage point. And Kamala Harris would not be the White House concierge. But go ahead. I just had to say that. I mean, I mean so the, the, the question becomes, right, why are we in a position where we think a digital hashtag is actually a movement? Why are we in that position? Because we are in a position, again, where we have two, maybe three generations of Americans, particularly black folk, who have no idea what movement politics look like. And we believe that these little digital mechanisms that are allowed to help you get $9 million, $10 million subsidies from the Ford Foundation, Amazon.com, and Netflix are actually movements when they're just kind of astroturf phenomenon run by people in the nonprofit industrial complex that are not about getting people or poor and working class to create a politics where their names and phone numbers are on a list and we can say we need 10,000 people XYZ here to do one, two, three. And why are we in a position where we still believe simple protest is a movement in and of itself? So Why yeah, haven't yeah. the actual mechanisms besides saying I was able to go and say, you know, it's like fire, fire, gentrifier, black people used to live here, is a means to stop gentrification. Why mm -hmm. do we not have mechanisms that actually challenge capital? I'm very yep. impressed by how we are seeing people using general strikes. Listen, the fact that we have fast food change in restaurants that are talking about we need to increase the pay, we pay people because they're not coming back to work, tells me that the general strike paradigm can work because I know all kinds of people saying, oh, I don't agree with $15 minimum wage, and, oh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, it, the, the AI is going to replace all these laborers these laborers anyway, so they're going to be replaced. Well, how quick were they replaced when now you have McDonald's and everyone else crying about, we don't have labor yeah. anymore? What, what yeah. happened we, to the we, AI? We, that was supposed to... we, we have know, only a few minutes, but I think your point is well taken, and I think that the idea that organizers and mobilizers in, of black people across this country have got to start working at the local level. We had a, a, a young man on with an organization in South Carolina <coughs> on the issue of justice, uh, wealth, and health last week, and I was making the point with him that you've got to deliver for the people where you live. And until we start doing that, it's not going to happen. I wish we had more time, Pascal. I really do. Um, tell us for a minute about the times that you broadcast at This Is Revolution. You can catch us, myself and my host, Jason Miles, at This Is Revolution podcast on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Thursdays, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and on Saturdays at noon Eastern Standard Time. You can find us on YouTube, This Is Revolution Podcast. We have a Facebook page, This Is Revolution Podcast. All of your podcast apps, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Podcaster, 
Spotify. Look up This Is Revolution Podcast. Go to our page, go to Patreon, and look This Is Revolution Podcast. Become a patron. Hit like, subscribe, share to our, to our platform. We are trying to bring an analysis of black politics and politics in general rooted in political economy and to create an alternative to the traditional Democrat-Republican kind of posturing to ask why exactly does American politics and particularly American capitalism not provide the quality of life for America's majority of poor and working class people, and that is def- definitely segment, large segments of the black community. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you and Jason are on um, black economic po- uh, politics because we need a big education thrust on that front. Pascal Roberto, thank you so very much. It was great having you back at Our Common Ground. I do miss you. Um, oh, you're you still so an interlocutor, which I depend upon. Um, and um, uh, we we certainly wish this is revolution well and hope that people will catch you um, during the week. At this is Revolution Podcast. Start by doing a Google search on the Googles at the YouTubies. <laughs> also live on Facebook. So Pascal, come back soon. We need to talk about some of the lingering issues. And thank you so very much. And, folks, thank you for being with us. I'm sure that um, you will share this episode of Our Common Ground with your friends. Uh, Make sure that you help us uh, build a community. Uh, I work very hard to make it a viable sanctuary for black voice. Next week at Our Common Ground, Dr. James Taylor is going to be with us, and we're going to be looking at justice from one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Thanks for being with us. Have a good week. Do something for black people. Learn something from black people. Give something to black people. So tonight we start. There's an African proverb that says, you speak my name and I will live forever. So tonight we will speak some names. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves.